Come one, come all, you've reached the magical land of a little spooky. <laughs> a podcast about things that spook us just a little bit. Things like aliens, cryptids, conspiracies. Or when you get some yummy, 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 yummy Chinese takeout. You don't mm. get it too often. And, you know, you want to get those cream cheese wontons, right? Sure. A, a nice delicacy, in my opinion. Don't get it too often. But then you have mad shits and food poisoning later and now you can't even fathom the idea of eating them ever again really those are like your favorite food my name is Everett. i'm colleen i'm uh, you really want to give them up i don't borf that often i've never known you to not love cream cheese wontons i know and i don't borf that often and when i do it sounds like a fucking axe murder is in our house (laughs) You clip the audio. I know. Um, it's so loud. It scared me in the middle of the night. You got to release the demons inside. And that is also why I'm never going to eat it again, or at least for a long time. When I was a child, I barfed once. Can you just say barf like a normal person? <laughs> I barfed once after I believe it was either tater tot, like casserole, like, you know, yeah. lunch at school when you, you, you did you say tater tot casserole i didn't want to say this tater tot hot dish and like have all the people say oh these stupid minnesotans Wisconsin Min- we've made it clear we are minnesotans in previous episodes anyway i either <laughs> ate that or just tater tots or hash browns of some kind i barfed it up and i refused to eat any form of potato for like five years wow. other than like mashed potatoes I, the same thing happened to me after eating some Little Debbie's Swiss cake rolls. Still can't eat them. I have vivid memory of a, a Wednesday after fifth grade just barfing up a Swiss cake roll. Still can't do it. And now it's cream cheese wontons for me. It sucks because I do love them so much, but. That's too I'm bad. That little, is spooky in itself. I'm getting that a little one sick to my incident. Stomach even thinking about it oh all right well we got a lot to talk about so maybe we should just move on from that topic so today we're talking about this is a big subject the cash landrum ufo incident there is so much documentation articles books uh medical records witness statements Everything. There is so much to cover, and I have so many pages of notes right in front of me, and I still don't feel like I'm doing it justice. So consider this an introduction to the Cash Lantern UFO incident. It's crazy fascinating. It is incredibly well-documented. Before I get started, Mm -hmm. I want to make a shout-out to our listener who sent me these materials. He originally hosted his own podcast called Darwin's Deviations, and now he's hosting one called Tracing Owls. So give that a listen cool. if you are so inclined. Is it, I assume it's about owls. It's not. It's oh, it's a it's a, <laughs> it's a cryptid adjacent podcast. Oh, okay. Um, I listened to the most recent episode. It's pretty pretty good pretty silly silly song well thank you that's cool yeah so thank you for sending me these sources and let's get into it sure let's just let's rip off the band-aid let's get started rip it rip it sniff it throw it away yeah throw throw that bad boy (laughs) away bin it all right so the majority of my Content, I guess, is going to be coming from the Cash Landrum UFO incident by John F. Schusler, which was written in 1998. Now, John Schusler was a contractor for NASA. He worked on the space shuttle program, and he was also deputy director of MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, which mm-hmm. we have talked about. Which I think it's cool that somebody who actually like worked for NASA and on the space shuttle program was a a director of MUFON. It's interesting because, like, if you ask a lot of people, it'd be, like, contradictory yes. areas to work in. Yeah. That's why it's so fascinating to me. But he worked very closely with the victims of this event to write this book. And the idea was to write their story down because they want to warn people about the dangers of UFOs, of government conspiracies of 
government cover-ups, and they want to provide a guide as to what might happen if a UFO incident like this were to happen to you. So you can kind of have an idea of, like, what they went through. Okay. He assisted them with getting medical and legal help. He tracked down witnesses. He hired doctors. The works. This guy did everything. And the book is fascinating. It's basically just like a list of his investigation and what he found. So it's like less story form and more just, this is my investigation. These are the results. Cool. According to him, this case has never been solved or resolved in any ways. But the uh, the government, the American government, claims otherwise, as usual. So that's my main source. But again, I read interviews. I read articles. I read medical records. There is so much stuff going on here. Let's start with the incident itself. Yeah. So the story starts on the evening of December 29th, 1980. Betty Cash and Vicki Landrum were two women in their 50s living in Dayton, Texas. Okay. So Dayton is a small town about 30 minutes northeast of Houston, and it seems to be, or at least at the time, was a place where ranchers and oil workers tended to live. On this particular night, Betty and Vicki were hankering for some bingo. As you do. As you do. So they and Vicky's seven-year-old grandson, Colby, all pile into Betty's old Oldsmobile and they drive out looking for some good old people fun, <laughs> which is weird because they're like in their early 50s. But, you know, bingo is can't resist that bingo. <laughs> so they end up driving to a few towns in the area. On the prowl for those <laughs> sweet, sweet bingo cards. But everything was closed. Um, they checked out a VFW in Cleveland, Texas, which... These are all Ohio names, know, too. That and weird? I'm, I'm getting, like, confused a little but bit. But they're all, like, within 15, 30-minute drives sure, of each other. Sure. So they, they check out a VFW in Cleveland. They're disappointed because there's nothing there. They all pack back into the car, and they drive south to New Caney. To check out the Legion Hall there that usually has games on Monday nights. But no dice. (laughs) Or no bingo. How how old are these ladies again? (laughs) Um, Like 52, 54. Okay, okay. So early 50s. Sure, sure. For some reason, I don't know why, but I had like an idea in my head that these were like 30-somethings. No, no, no. No, Really in check with their future retired selves. No, I mean, they're not old by any no, means no, no, no. Fifth, but, like but yeah no they're not in their 30s the 80s man no internet because now you just like google it and be like hey is there bingo now nah, i'll just stay home but they had to literally drive for hours to like actively seek out bingo <laughs> and then be disappointed anyways they give up after this and they decide to just get something to eat at a truck stop okay. before dr- just heading home At this point, it's about 8.45 p.m., late December, so it's dark. They're driving down a highway, and the road is usually pretty busy, but this night it's fairly deserted. Monday night. Monday night, 8.45 p.m., I guess. They mentioned that they seem to be the only car driving on the road at this time. They're probably not particularly paying attention. Like, they noticed that there were a bunch of other cars, but it's very deserted. So it's Betty's car. Betty's driving. Vicky's in the passenger seat. And seven-year-old Colby is just standing behind the driver's seat. Standing? Again, yes, the 80s. There's The seat belts were apparently optional. So he's like standing. And Betty and Vicky are, they describe their conversation. They're talking about the good old times, basically. <laughs> oh they're, they're driving in an Oldsmobile to Bingo in Texas, talking about the good old days. When suddenly Colby is like, what is that? He sees this red streak of light in the sky. And Vicky and Betty are like not interested. And, you know, they're talking to each other. It's like mom's talking, you know? He's not bingo. He's not bingo. He's not the good old days. He's a seven-year-old just, like, pestering them while they're driving, as seven-year-olds do. So they initially ignore him. But then he 
grabs Vicky's face and turns it towards the light and is like, what is that? Is she the driver? No, she's the passenger. Okay. Okay. She's also his grandmother. Okay. Yeah. And finally, they notice it. You know, like, <laughs> Vicky's like, fine. Um, but they can't tell what it is. It doesn't look like a plane or a star or anything that they can, like, pinpoint. Betty thinks the closest thing she can think of is that, like, maybe there's a new mall or shopping center that got built and has, like, a, a spotlight sure. up to yeah. draw attention. They don't do that very much anymore. No. With the spotlights. There was one place, a burger place, like, yeah. close to where I went to college that had one. Yeah. I remember driving past it on the highway. Yeah. yeah. But you don't see that anymore. Bring back the spotlight. That's the closest thing they could think of. But even looking at it, they were like, it's that's definitely not a spotlight. I have no idea what that is. And as they're talking about it, it's getting brighter and brighter and closer and closer and lighting up more of the sky in front of them. Now, just as an aside for some backstory, it seems like Colby was essentially being raised by Vicky. Uh, so he was like less of a grandson and more of her son. Sometimes like in later on in the book, he refers to her as mama. Okay. So it, it really doesn't make a difference to the story at all. But if you're wondering why a woman in her 50s has a seven-year-old kid. Right. Sure. I mean, it's not unheard of, but maybe they're just like hanging out. Who knows? He likes bingo. Yeah. I, I mean, seven-year-old me was in a bingo if there were prizes. Anyways, so the the light's getting closer and closer. It's getting brighter and brighter. And Betty's like, well, I mean, like, I'm just going to keep driving. It's weird, but I, what am I supposed to do about it? I just, I want to make my way home. But eventually it turned from just being a streak in the sky to a light the size of a car to being directly in front of them. And it was so bright that they described the experience as like the sky splitting open. And as their eyes adjust a little bit, they see that a couple hundred feet in front of them, there was an enormous metallic object just hanging in the sky. So the highway was lined with these big pine trees and they describe it as towering above those trees, but the bottom of it reached to about halfway down the trees. Okay. And it was spewing fire from the bottom, kind of like rocket boosters, oh. but like broken. Like it was just on fire at the bottom. And it was blocking their way down the highway because, you know, apart from being halfway down the trees, the fire was just like spurting down. They couldn't drive through it or under it. So they were completely blocked in. And it was making this impossibly loud, booming, roaring sound and beeping as well. It's mysterious beeping sound. Okay. It was enough that they had to yell to hear each other when they were talking, even though it was still a couple hundred feet in front of them. Right. This all happened so quickly. Like it went from being a streak in the sky to car size to right in front of them. Betty's still driving the car. Like she hasn't had time to register that she needs to stop the car yet so this whole time they're barreling closer and closer and closer to it and as they get closer to it the car starts to get impossibly hot like they're inside of an oven and they can feel themselves like burning alive even though they're still probably a hundred or so feet away from it oh. Colby freaks out and he climbs over the front seat as Betty is driving to get into Vicky's lap, which kind of spurs Betty to hit the gas. The gas? Yes, rather than the brake. Like her thought was if she could speed up as fast as she could, she could drive under it. Through the fire and flames. Yes. So the interesting thing about the fire is that it's kind of coming like spurting. Like it'll be like whoosh. And then off for a second and then whoosh and like, then off for a second like a video game obstacle yeah kind of yes or like a malfunctioning rocket booster okay so her thought is like i'm gonna drive under it i just i just want to get past this i don't know what's happening i'm terrified these bingo ladies always love trying their luck <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> right but it was kind of like a fight or flight reaction and she decided sure. to go yeah, with yeah. flight so 
she hits the gas, but an instant later, Vicky is like, you are going to get us burned alive. You're going to get us burned alive. She's continually screaming this. So Betty slams on the brakes so hard that they almost fly through the windshield. Seatbelts. Ex- right? So they, they come to a stop about 150 feet away from whatever this thing is. At this point, everyone in the car is panicking. Panicking's not even the right word. They are fully convinced that they are about to die. Right, yeah. They're practically burning alive in a car 150 feet away from this enormous burning 200-foot-tall metallic ship. And they describe it as being diamond-shaped. So it comes out, like it's wider on the sides, comes out to two points, and then up to a top. It's a diamond with the rocket boosters coming down. And it seems like it's breaking down. Like the flames aren't necessarily supposed to be there. Or if they are, it's malfunctioning somehow. Like it's burning in a way it's not supposed to be. The flames are coming and going. They're crazy hot. And the ship never crashes down to the ground. Like, it's still hovering in the air. But it seems like it's stuck hanging there. Like, it'll... every. It's like somebody's hitting the gas, and the, the flames will go... Whoosh, and the craft will rise up a couple feet. Right. And then the flames will immediately stop, and the, the craft will fall back down a couple of feet. Just can't get traction. Exactly. So it's kind of like a <laughs> like a like a malfunctioning car. Right. You know, like they're but hitting in the, the air. But in the air. Right. So it's like it's having engine problems and there they are. Just like literally stopped in front of it. So at this point, if it was me, I would have been like, um put the car in reverse. Yeah, get turn, out of turn there. Around. Right? Yeah. But with the burning and the noise and being blinded and the panic, they need like a second to figure out their situation. Betty is pretty quickly looking around and she notices the highway is very narrow and it has these deep ditches on either side. So she can't like pull a UE or anything easily. So they're basically stuck either going forward or putting the car in reverse. But she's so blinded by the light that she doesn't feel comfortable going in reverse because she would go into a ditch. So they're essentially stuck there. Their only other option is to get out of the car and run on foot, which is exactly what Betty tries to do. So her next instant thought, she opens the door, she bails, and she makes a run for it. But as soon as she gets out of the car the heat immediately hits her and the light blinds her and she has no idea which direction to run or like even where the road is she's pretty much completely blinded all she has is this light in her eyes so she's completely disoriented she's standing outside of the car in this blistering heat like a deer in headlights she can't even see the car vicky jumps out as well and she runs a couple feet and then she remembers my grandson is here (laughs) like I can't I'm obviously not going to leave my grandkid he can't like I can't carry him he can't run as fast as me you know if we go outside and he gets blinded as well we're going to get separated so we're staying in the car that's like our only source of protection right now and she's not going to abandon her grandson as she's Stepping out of the car, Colby also gets out of the car because he's, like, attached to her like Velcro. Right. Vicky has her left hand on top of the car. She sets her left hand down, immediately pulls it off, and it's just burned. Colby, freaking out, just starts to make a run for it by himself. He's not thinking clearly. Vicky grabs him by with one arm, and the best option in her mind is we have to stay in the car. We don't know which direction we're running. What if he trips and falls into a ditch and breaks his neck? Like, what do we do? So she gets in the car and Colby is hyperventilating so badly that she thinks he's about to have a heart attack. So Vicky's calming, trying to calm him down. Well, at the same time, she's absolutely convinced that they're about to die. So she's calming him down by telling him that that bright light is Jesus coming to take them. If you see Jesus coming out of that bright light, just know, you know, we're going to a better place. 
That would not be calming to me as a seven-year-old, but no. I imagine he's not really listening. Probably can't. <laughs> right, and it's very loud. I don't know what's up with Betty, but Betty decides to walk towards the light to investigate what it might be. And she's able to drag her feet one step at a time slowly to the front of the car. And she stood there for five solid minutes just staring at this light burning while Vicky is screaming, get back in the car, get back in the car. You're burning alive. Get back in the car. After about five minutes, she comes to her senses. She walks back to the car and she tries to open the door, but the handle is so blisteringly hot. She has to use a leather jacket that she's wearing as like a hot pad sure. to open the door. She eventually gets it open. She gets back in the car. She sits down and Vicky just starts screaming at her for being an idiot and leaving and standing in front of this burning thing by herself for five minutes. So they're all back in the car, nothing they can do. And they sit there, essentially convinced they're going to die, burning to death for about 15 minutes while this thing screeches and tries to launch itself up in the air and burns in front of them. Suddenly, a huge stream of burning hot flames shoots out of the bottom of the ship and it finally is able to rise above the trees and it leaves. And it flies off towards Houston mm. in that direction. And they watch it sail up and glide away, which you think would be the end of it. But no, 23 U.S. military helicopters fly after it. I was going to say, if it's there that long, mm -hmm. making that much of a ruckus, there's no way these three are the only ones that were aware of it. Right. Well, we will see what the government has to say about it later, but they can't see the insignia necessarily on the side of these helicopters. They do notice that they're two bladed helicopters, okay, which are like not normal, you know, that you yeah, don't see those very not, often. It's not like belonging to a hospital or something because right. they usually have four blades. But they fly so close that they can see some sort of American military insignia on the sides of them, but they're not close enough to be able to, like, pinpoint exactly sure. what it was. Now, Betty later said that the helicopters looked like they were trying to help it and, like, lead it somewhere. Not that they were coming in to investigate, but, like, they were coming to guide it to land somewhere else safely. They had surrounded it, but weren't trying to pull it down. They were kind of signaling where it should go. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Either way, Betty and Vicky were like, we're going home. <laughs> like, we're done with this. We almost died. We're going home. So they just book it out of there as fast as they can. And they're ready to just like, Forget this happened. I, I'm thinking, how does the car even run if it got that hot? Well, it did turn off, and it took him a few tries to restart it. Well, sure, but I'm just thinking, like, if the car itself got so hot for 15 to 20 minutes, yeah. like, it's probably overheated in general, even if it was off the whole time. Mm. Yeah, I don't just know. Just a thought. Yeah, right. Well, as they're driving home, they're flipping through the radio, because they're like, surely we are not the only people that noticed this we saw military helicopters. This thing basically split the sky open. This has to be on the news. Well, they're flipping through all the channels as they're driving home. It's about like a 20, 30 minute drive home mm -hmm. and nothing. Absolutely no news about this at all. And at this point, they're all starting to feel sick. It starts off with them feeling like they've been sitting in the sun for too long. Like they feel burned. Right. Generally sunburned. They're starting to get these massive headaches. Their eyes are burning. They're starting to feel nauseous. Betty is starting to f get these massive lumps forming on her head and her neck. Was she irradiated? Well, that's the question. We'll see. But either way, they get back to Dayton. Betty drops Vicky off, Vicky and Colby, and she gets back to her home moderately safely. So that was the actual physical encounter, whether it's a space UFO, government ship, a Russian military experiment. 
It's uh, whatever it is. Russian. It's an unidentified flying object. Right. Yes. But for the three victims, that specific event is over, but their problems have pretty much just started. When Vicky and Colby got home that night, they felt just completely awful. They were bright red. They looked like they'd been sitting in the sun all day. And they were like so thirsty. <laughs> okay. I was trying yes. to say unquenchable thirst. Okay. So they get home. They're they are just chugging water. And they decide to go to bed because A, it's late at night. B, they feel sick. So Vicky is like, I'm just going to rub us down with some baby oil. Like At first, she started, she wanted to take like a cold bath, but like the water hurt her skin so bad that she ended up just kind of like sponge bathing herself and Colby and then baby putting baby oil on, make sure their skin doesn't like dry out and fall off. Okay. So they all go to bed, but at 1 a.m., Colby starts viciously vomiting and diarrhea. And then she pretty quickly after started having the same symptoms. However, life apparently goes on because when they wake up in the morning officially, her husband Ernest is like, where's my breakfast? So she gets up and she makes him breakfast, even though she is like leaking from both ends. All, and, all and over. skin, probably, too. Yes. And then she wakes Colby up and is like, well, I still got to get to work. So she goes to work. She actually works for Betty. Betty owns a little restaurant in the area. Okay. Vicky is a waitress there. Betty, however, has sold the restaurant. She's moving to nearby town to a bigger space. So on this particular morning, Vicky had told Betty that she would help her pack up the restaurant. Okay. She gets there. Betty's not there. But Vicky's like, well, you know, maybe she's suffering with the same things we are. She's sl- Wait, before you go on, did the husband have anything to say about their appearance? No, he mentioned absolutely nothing. Because I assume they're still very red. Yes. she. It's mentioned she is very red and blistery and she's barfing and, and having diarrhea. And the husband said nothing and she said nothing and he went to work and she went to work. Cool. Yeah. I mean, not my kind of relationship, but whatever works for everyone else. And Colby else. went to school this day, I assume, or what? No, Colby tagged along to the restaurant, and I imagine it's because it was December 29th. Oh, this would have been December 30th. I believe they're on, like, a Christmas yeah, holiday that vacation. that makes sense. Vicky gets to the restaurant. Colby tags along. Betty's not there. Vicky's like, well, Betty's probably also feeling sick. She's probably running late, but, you know. No rest. Must work. So she has her own key. She opens it up. She goes in. She starts packing things up. But she sends Colby to go check on her because Betty actually only lives about a third of a mile away. So Colby walks over to go check on Betty, make sure she's doing okay. okay. So he knocks on the door and he knocks on the door and he knocks on the door. No answer. He goes back to the restaurant, tells Vicky. And at this time, the restaurant cook had showed up to also help pack up and vicky's like hey dude um can you go check on betty you know like maybe you can walk around and peek in the windows or whatever make sure she's okay so he walks over there and he knocks on the door and he knocks on the door no answer he walks around back and he peeks in betty's bedroom window to make sure she's okay but she's not she's clearly not okay she is bright red her face and neck are completely swollen her eyes are almost swollen shut she's got these lumps all over her face and neck and she physically cannot leave the bed yikes when he knocks on the window she yells out get vicky i need help so vicky comes to get her she's trying to take care of her as best as she can but you know she can't make her eat She can't get her to drink anything. Anytime she consumes anything, she immediately vomits it up. She refuses to go to a doctor, however. And I think partially because she's like, nah, I'm fine. But also, who's going to believe their story? Well, it doesn't matter what happened as long as she gets medical help. Right. Because she's like Jabba the Hutt and can't move because she's engorged to a point that she's a slug. Right. Well, Vicky... Eventually, like, wraps her up in a blanket and gets her back to her own house to take care of her because Betty clearly cannot take care of herself. Like, she can't move her legs. She's 
She's completely helpless. But eventually, Vicky makes an executive decision after a couple days and gets Betty to a hospital because she's not improving at all. Now, they get to the doctor, and Vicky doesn't tell them what happened. She's like, oh, you know, I think maybe Betty has, like, blood clots or something. Can you, like, check her out? And the doctors are like, um, this woman looks like a burn victim. So can, please tell us what happened. And Vicky's like, I don't, I have no idea. I thought it was just blood clots. Can you just check her out? So the doctors, not getting anywhere, just treat Betty as a burn victim. Right. However, while she's at the hospital, she starts losing all of her hair. She gets these massive headaches, blisters, the vomiting is still happening, the diarrhea is still happening. Her daughter comes from out of town to visit her, walks into the room, looks at her mother, assumes she's in the wrong room because she doesn't recognize her at all. She's bald, swollen, well, balding. She has huge bald patches. Her face is swollen. She has to go ask a nurse to make sure she's in the correct room. And when she rubs her mom's forehead... Or, like, you know, brushes her hair. Yeah. Water starts seeping out of her mom's forehead and into her hair, or what's left of her hair. And when she tries to touch her mom's hair, it, like, just fell out in a big clump in her fingers. Ugh. Apparently, she got a little bit better over time because after being hospitalized for 17 days and running as all the tests they can think of, the hospital discharges her. Interesting. Okay. But six days later, she gets worse again and ends up back in the hospital. Okay. Betty finally decides to tell the doctors what happened. And they didn't laugh at her. Like, she was kind of expecting them to be like, yeah, okay. But, I mean, it was kind of clear they didn't believe her. But they were like, well, you should have told us this immediately. We would have maybe had thought of a different way to treat you. But again, they're at a loss for what to do because nobody knows how to handle UFO burns as far as we know. So they run more tests. They run blood tests and eye tests and tests with her hair and skin biopsies and x-rays and all of the possible tests you can run. And they don't find anything. They diagnose her with alopecia to explain the hair loss. And cellulitis to explain why her skin is red and swelling. She was basically never the same again. But there was no explanation. And she was admitted again and again and again and again over the years. Like probably at least once a year for chest pains. She was eventually diagnosed with bronchitis. She had, was diagnosed with different skin problems over the years. Her fingernails all fell out. And the only diagnosis she ever got was alopecia, which if you don't know what that is, it's like an immune disorder that causes hair loss, Right. essentially. It has nothing to do with being burned. I don't know much about it, but it's it seems kind of like, oh, well, we don't know what to diagnose you with. So this is the best we can come up with. So at the, at the time of her first ad being admitted to the hospital and then she's there for 17 days or however long you said, mm -hmm. do, do Vicky and Colby still have like their red skin? Yes. OK, so here's. The breakdown why, why for them. Why would the doctors ask, like, you look the exact, or you look like you're in well, bad shape, too? Vicky and Colby look like they've been sunburned with some blisters. Okay. Betty is on, like, a completely different level. And the thought right. is... And I get that, but I'm just wondering, like, she and the kid are obviously, yeah. you know, like, experienced some sort of burning, now this too. Is, this is about, like, three or four days after the event. So right. I imagine their skin has healed a little okay, bit, so but they're still not looking great. The doctor would notice, but nothing that I read said anything about the doctors asking them about okay. their condition. So Vicky and Colby also had their fair share of problems over the years. Vicky suffered from very similar hair loss. All of her nails completely fell out. Most of Betty's nails fell out, but she managed to retain a few of them. So good on her. Okay. But all of Vicky's nails completely fell out. She had the blisters. She had the vomiting, the diarrhea. It, it seems like it was very severe for her for a few months after the encounter. Got better, 
but never really went away. She ended up developing cataracts. She lost most of her hair and ended up having to wear a wig for a while. It did eventually grow back. She had eye and skin issues basically for the rest of her life. But again, not anything quite close to Betty. And I, the idea is because Betty spent a solid five, five minutes. minutes in front of right. and, and Colby and Vicky were pretty much the entire time in the car with the exception of like a few seconds when they had exited right and gotten back in yeah colby does not seem to have gotten it nearly as bad and again i think that's because he spent even more time in the car than vicky did because vicky had gotten out before he did and then she ushered him back in the car well and kids bounce back better than a 50 year old yes and i truly think that's part of it he Despite being in the second grade, had to go back into diapers for a couple of weeks. Like he completely lost control of his bowels. But again, that resolved itself after a few weeks. Right. He ended up having eye problems, had to get glasses that he probably would not have otherwise had to get. He developed the same sensitivity to heat where he would blister if he got into like a bath that was warmer than room temperature. But most of his problems were psychological. Again, very understandable. He developed an intense fear of planes, helicopters, any kind of bright light, shooting stars. Anytime any of this would happen, he'd have these severe panic attacks, that sort of thing, which is devastating for an elementary school kid. But again, in the 80s, I don't imagine that people were very forthcoming with psychological help. For that sort of phobia, especially if you are attributing it to a UFO. Now, there's extensive information about the medical records for these three victims. Blood counts, eye exams, skin exam results. And all of them were completely open to having their lives pretty much publicized for the sake of figuring out what happened to them. So you can find the results of all of the tests pretty much online. And to me, this kind of lends to their credibility as witnesses. Like, they're well, not yes, hiding anything. Something happened, for yes. sure. Yeah. The doctors even gave extensive testimony as to their conditions before and after the event. So, for instance, Betty had a heart bypass sometime in the late 70s. But of, other than that, she was considered completely healthy. She, in fact, was, like, very concerned about her appearance, was a perfectly healthy weight. She was just considered very healthy. Sure. And after this event, she lost a massive amount of weight. Her doctor, as well as the dermatologist, the neurologist, the ophthalmologist, other third parties were all able to corroborate her symptoms. And Betty told them all the exact same story every time with no deviation. So they all consider her to be a very reliable witness. And the doctor that she went to at the hospital was the same doctor who had treated her for years before the event. So he knew her prior and stated that he never believed her to be untruthful. Sure. Yeah. I'm not going to talk too much more about their medical stuff. You can find whatever information you want online. But essentially, the idea is they got very, very ill unexplainedly and so i assume they had to test for radiation because that's what i've been thinking this whole time so that's we're gonna get to that oh okay put a pause on that because it does not look like they were tested for radiation initially sure for in those initial hospitalizations even though they're sick and betty is she's pretty much dying at this point i mean she eventually gets breast cancer has to have a mastectomy but like in the immediate aftermath of the UFO encounter, she's dying. Like, they didn't think she would last. Yeah, she's not doing well. Vicky was convinced she was going to die. Her mom came down to take care of her. Even if she isn't, it feels like she's dying. She's not doing well. They still want to know what happened to them. Especially if you are dying. You want to know, like, who did this and how. But at first, they keep the story pretty quiet. Because, again... UFO stories aren't really something you're going to run around telling people about. You want people to take you seriously. The thing that really baffled them was that no matter what research they did, nobody seemed to know anything about it. Like there were no articles. Nobody was, was coming up to say they saw something similar. And they saw military helicopters. Right. So obviously somebody else 
was aware of this happening, but there was no information about it. So while Betty was in the hospital, Vicky is going around. She's calling police agencies, radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, military agencies, looking for any information. She calls the Dayton police chief, who clearly, like, didn't really believe her. But he also didn't think she was lying. Like, he didn't necessarily believe it was a UFO, but he was like, I know this woman. Well, and I mean... Their injuries too. Like yes, and they have clear injuries. He's like, clearly, she believes something happened to her, and clearly, something happened to her. If she believes it's a UFO, the only thing I can do is give you the number to a UFO reporting center. So she calls them, tells them her story. They passed her story on to a friend of the author of this book, John Schusler. Okay. He essentially gets a hold of the story. And is the only one interested in investigating. So he starts the investigation. I mean, Betty even called NASA to figure it out. And NASA was like, we don't know what you're talking about. John Schusler eventually gets in touch with Betty and Vicky about 10 weeks after the incident occurred. And again, this is when the official, like the investigation officially begins. So he hears about the story, he's looking into it, and then, you know, after some time, he gets a hold of the actual victims to get her started. Right. Now, when John Schusler gets involved, he starts by interviewing the victims. And I read all of these interviews, and they are all exactly the same. The the story I told you about the event. Yeah. They all their stories all line up. They all corroborate the details of from what I read are all the same. Following the interviews, he gets a new doctor involved to check out their medical records, which he was very easily able to obtain, except for Betty's blood results. Every time he contacted the hospital to get her blood results, the hospital was like, Sorry, um, they're temporarily out of file. We can't give them to you. Over a year later, he managed to get them, which seemed a little sketchy to him, at least enough to write it down in this book. Right. Now, the new doctor was Dr. Peter Rank of Madison, Wisconsin, who happens to be an expert in radiology. Although these women and Colby, uh, but his medical records aren't really as extensively covered because he was not as extensively tested. He's a child. Right. Although these women are super ill and they have lasting effects requiring intermittent hospitalizations for years, the only diagnosis, official diagnosis he has to go off of is Betty's alopecia, which, again, seems to just be a diagnosis they made because they couldn't think of anything else. Right. Or maybe they knew it was something else and they didn't want to admit it. So they were like, it's alopecia. You have alopecia and skin issues. Sure, sure. I I doubt that because they knew the doctors ahead of time. But again, you never know. Maybe the government got to them. Either way, Dr. Rank is convinced this isn't alopecia, and he has a lot of reasons. The tests that were done on Betty's hair were inconsistent with alopecia. The biopsies that she had showed different kinds of cells than are consistent with alopecia. He basically is like, I don't know why they would have come to the conclusion of alopecia other than the fact that you're losing your hair. Right. And in addition, the loss of their nails and the skin issues are very consistent with radiation poisoning. Oh, and the the immediate vomiting, too. Yes. That's something that all these, like, people in Japan after the recent um, nuclear disasters that have happened there, like, same types of symptoms. Yes, exactly. So he concludes that Vicky and Betty are actually suffering from radiation poisoning, likely gamma rays, as they can penetrate skin better than alpha and beta particles now i don't know anything about the difference between these apparently like alpha and beta particles probably would have been stopped by the car if they were inside it sure yeah i again i don't know 
But he goes on to say that whatever kind of radiation Betty and Vicky were exposed to, it was more penetrating than the most superficial types, but it still did not penetrate sufficiently to cause systemic signs and symptoms. It seems therefore safe to conclude at this time that Betty and Vicky sustained radiation damage, which was confined to the skin and immediate subcutaneous area. He also says that the skin sensitivity, diarrhea, hair loss, and hair regrowth, as well as nail loss, are very consistent with radiation exposure. However, there was another doctor who looked at these, Dr. Brad Sparks, and he says that the extreme rapid onset of these symptoms means that they had to have been exposed to enough radiation to kill them within days. You know, the fact that they're still alive makes him think that it was not radiation poisoning. He's thinking that they were likely exposed to some kind of chemical. Okay. I, I will say this, though, and obviously we are no experts At all. On, on radiation <laughs> and radiation poisoning and all of that. But I, in my mind, I'm thinking there aren't a whole lot of test subjects related to radiation poisoning and death by being radiated. So who's to say that... You know, they didn't experience enough radiation to kill them because they, for whatever reason, were just very, I, I guess, the opposite of susceptible, right? Yeah. Like they were resistant to I don't, it. There is a lot of studies into radiation, though. No, of and course. And how it affects the human body. But so I'm like, just thinking actual subjects that it has happened to. Yeah, I mean, you can't it's ethically. Very limited. <laughs> right. Right. I don't know. Either way, though. Suspicious. Either it's radiation or some unknown chemical. That was in the exhaust or yes. the, the fire. Sure. Right. So either way, sketch. Now, my question here is like, I would think that I understand why doctors would look at her and say burn victim. Totally makes sense. Right? Because right. swollen, blistery, red. But after that, with the the continuing symptoms, wouldn't... Because even you, a non-medical professional in any way, immediately thought radiation poisoning. Right. I and don't... Especially because of the... Well, and they weren't very forthcoming with, you know, their story. So that, you know, could yes. have been a, de a deterrent in testing for radiation. But I, the immediate thought to me is burn signs of burning, but also nausea vomiting diarrhea like to me that is radiation burning mm -hmm. and radiation exposure yes and that was my first thought as well so it's just a little bit baffling to me that a doctor wouldn't be like that's what i was thinking too but then that also says to me maybe they did test for it and they you know maybe there's certain things that medical professionals have to report and then Maybe they I'm were silenced. I don't know. Completely possible. I don't know. I It's bizarre to me because to me, again, just like you, my first thought would be radiation poisoning. So that is the situation of the event and what happened to them. So at this point, I am going to cut it off. And next week, we will discuss the investigation the tests on Betty and Vicky's car, who they contacted. They look extensively into the helicopters. We'll get into that next week. If I kept going, this would be a very long episode. So we're going to break it in half right here. We were just thinking it, it's going to be way too long. Yeah, it's going to be way too <laughs> We wouldn't have time to finish recording it tonight. So I'll leave it at cliffhanger. Yeah, we will finish it for next week's episode. But in the meantime, I have a couple of stories I found that I want to share. Lay it on me. First one. I'm not going to even read the story because it's basically kind of just the headline, but I wanted to talk about it. So there is a Brazilian woman that was hospitalized recently, and apparently she's like a semi-famous singer. So like she's in the public eye. Can you just throw out a guess why you think she was hospitalized? And it has to do with her partner. But there's no domestic abuse or anything like that. It's just it has to do with her partner. Was it a sex thing? No, it was not a sex thing. Any other guesses? Brazilian singer. Yeah. Hospitalized. I mean, not related to why she was hospitalized. It's just right. who she is. Yeah. You just, you gave me facts that well, she could be hospitalized. Snake. Okay. <laughs> you no, gave I know. me nothing. I just, I just, <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is there's no way you could guess this. So she was hospitalized because of trapped gas 
in her system because she refused to fart in front of her partner. What? <laughs> okay, no, okay. I understand the reluctance to fart in front of your partner. Do you? Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. No, you don't. But the thing is, after a certain point in time, it just comes out, right? I don't know. I guess Can you really you... just hold it in? I always heard that if you don't fart, it gets reabsorbed into your bloodstream and then it just... Maybe that's what grandmas tell their grandchildren to make sure they don't fart and burp in front of I'm them. I'm pretty sure it like eventually comes out as a... The gases just get reabsorbed and then it comes out as a burp. Well, obviously you're wrong. I mean, clearly. Because she was hospitalized. Um, That's basically it. <laughs> I just thought it was funny because like... It's such a funny thing to be like, she's fine, by the way. So that's why I feel fine joking about it. But like, imagine being so like reluctant to have your partner hear, feel, or <coughs> smell your fart. I don't want to feel, hear, or smell anyone's <laughs> fart. I mean, I can. <laughs> I would appreciate it if you were a little more reluctant around me. No, because the moral of this story is let it loose. (laughs) Don't hurt yourself. Okay. All right. I can. (laughs) Okay. I can get it. So that was the first one. But this next one is very intriguing. And it's an ongoing case slash investigation. Okay. So in Colorado, there was recently a robbery of sorts. There is a truck carrying cargo. Only one box was stolen. Okay. The weed box? I'm going to... No no drugs. And I'm going to ask you again, please guess, and it's not drugs. What do you think was in the box that was stolen? Now, these big trucks usually carry many boxes of the same thing. I will say in this case, they're all related things, but this particular box was the only one housing this particular thing. Bacon. Was it bacon? No. Oh. I <laughs> I don't I don't know what was it. So, someone broke in and stole a box containing human heads from this truck. W- real ones? Yes. Wait. So Was it just carrying boxes full of different Was it a cardboard box? What kind of box? I, I don't was know it? what kind of box. Wait, it was. but I, my first question should be: <laughs> should not have been what kind of what kind of packing material did they use? Okay, okay so this is from Fox News, um, like a local Fox News affiliate, because this is a local. Sure, crime. a um, local. Okay. Yes. So, this is just coming directly from them. This strange theft took place between two thirty p.m. Wednesday and nine thirty a.m. Thursday, and this was last week. So this was about a week ago. Okay. Actually, two weeks ago. Sorry about that. Okay. Took place in Denver's Central Park neighborhood. The heads were being transported for medical research purposes, according to authorities. Now, I would imagine that people who donate their bodies to science are not under the impression that their heads will be removed and transported to a different location. I, I can't speak to that. I don't know. But the story goes and says the blue and white box had a label that said exempt human specimen. And a dolly was also stolen and police did not say how many heads were in the box. So the cardboard box, it is cardboard, apparently. Wait, what? I imagine this is a refrigerated truck, though. What? The cardboard box, which was about 20 by 15 by 18 inches also had Science Care written on the sides. And what Science Care is, it's a program for donating bodies for both scientific research and education. So these bodies were donated to science, as you said. Okay. But that's all that's released to the public. They do not have any suspects as of now, and it's an ongoing investigation. What do you do with a box full of heads? That's the only thing that was stolen, was the heads. So they had to have known which box had the Wait, did well, you say they, it was labeled heads? No, it was not. But I imagine they were looking through. Okay, so there were it was disheveled. They didn't just like find a they box. They didn't say. But I imagine since only that one box was stolen containing human heads, they were there for the human heads. But why though? Don't know. I will say though, this is definitely a story that I personally am going to be following because I want to see so many reasons. Why. I'm sorry. If who who would who did it? Why did they it? do it? How did they do it? And, like, what? where are the heads now? That's what I want to know, Literally, too. Literally, if any 
article should be read on a little spooky. That is the one. I know. <laughs> what are they doing with the heads? I'm hoping we find out. I'm hoping this is not something that just, you know, it remains unsolved because this is too intriguing to me. Yeah, I don't like it. But I do. Okay, I hope it's not something stupid like they're going to boil all the meat off the heads so they have skulls and then can like sell them on Etsy or something. That would be boring. I want to hear about like head stew or like a. What if they like make shrunken heads or something? If it gets sold on Etsy, I don't it's not as intriguing to me. No, I'm not saying to sell on Etsy. I'm just saying for like practice or not practical, um, like personal witchery use now okay here's my thought on that a don't go stealing heads but b is there really if you that's part of your practice is there really an ethical way to get a human head that might be the closest thing to ethical as possible that's true because those bodies were donated for educational and oh, you didn't scientific do the killing. use i mean i suppose you could go like grave robbing like after those are filled with chemicals. I'm, yeah, you don't want to. I imagine head. since these bu- these heads were separated from the bodies, though, all the work's done for you. Well, no, I was going to say they're probably already, you know, filled with chemicals for preservation. So I'm just saying, my point was dumb. <laughs> they might not be though, because how much science can you do on a tainted head? I mean, probably a lot. Use a lot of different science. I don't know. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Anyway, that is a story that I'm going to follow. And if there are updates, I will bring them up. If you have any information. (laughs) If if you did it, turn yourself in. Well, sure. But also, like, before you do that, if you could, like, shoot us a note about just why and how. Give us the inside scoop. But then immediately turn yourself in. Just know that if you're looking for fame, this podcast does not have a very wide-reaching audience. <laughs> <laughs> so your secret is safe with us. I'm not keep. No, don't say that. <laughs> well, your secret is safe with, like, the few people who listen to this podcast. But, but we are not going to keep a secret if it means that you are going to be on the run. Yeah, no, don't do that. We're, we're, we're not going <laughs> to—I just— Turn yourself in. Yes. Or at least give the heads back. Like, what if you, what if he put, okay, what if he brought the cardboard box with all of the heads and their related accoutrement inside and they just left a note on it that said, like, sorry, here are your heads. Would he have to turn himself in then? I think so. Yes. Would they still be looking for him? I mean, they got their heads back. Yeah. Or her. But the, the heads, I imagine, are no longer of use because they disappeared for a while. What if he took them and made them better? <laughs> Just put little flowers behind their ears? Like, what do you mean better? The dollar attached to each head? Yeah, what if they... Right, yes. Well, what if they brought all the heads back and left a note and a check for 800 bucks or something? <laughs> you can Sorry, easily, that's all I have. Well, just, I, I think head. it's funny how you say a check, so it's going to be <laughs> yes. linked back to the person. A check who, made out to cash. The check has to be written by someone. It's linked to a bank account. Then you know who it is. Well, they could steal a check. Well, now we're getting into forgery and (laughs) should turn himself in. That's all. Yeah, that's all we have. But I will be following it. So any updates that come, I will make sure to tell you. Anyway, if you have a story that you would like us to read about, or if you have a personal story you would like us to share on the podcast, you can send it our way. You can send it to Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or at NerdslothHQ. Or you can email us at podcasts at nerdsloth.com. If you have any information about this uh, Cash Landrum UFO incident, I realize that I'm scratching the surface. So um, if there's specific things you would like to hear about before next week's episode, let me know. Yeah. Um, otherwise, I have read so much that I'm hoping you view this as an introduction to the Cash Landrum incident. And this will not be a three-part series, so... No, We're not going to do a third episode, but... It is a two-part series. Next week, we'll dive into the investigation. Yeah. Give us your UFO tales. You ever seen one? You ever... Been in one? Been in one? (laughs) Let us know. Right. Well, we'll continue that next week, and we love you. Love you. Bye. Bye.
Presented by NerdSloth, a place for lazy nerds. If you like what you heard, consider donating at patreon.com slash nerdsloth so we can continue bringing you quality shows. Be sure to also leave us a review and share your favorite episodes and clips on social media. If you're looking for more content, visit us at nerdsloth.com.